Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with Pat Bosch and her commitment to leveraging design as a force for positive change. Pat will share how her team develops projects that strive to merge innovation with social and environmental consciousness. Through real-world examples, she will present a compelling narrative on how architecture can catalyze community engagement and spark meaningful societal change. But before I begin my conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Pat Bosch is a founding partner of the Miami studio of Perkins and Will. And since 1996, she has led the office as its design director, internationally recognized for her design acumen and collaborative work style. Pat brings together diverse groups of stakeholders to generate ideas and find common ground. Design solutions emerge out of the strong partnership she builds with her clients, and she takes a humanistic and environmentally responsible approach to design that is supported by research and a meticulously executed process. Her work has been featured in architectural magazines around the world, and she recently spoke at the National Building Museum as part of the Spotlight on Design series, and was a key contributor to the Fast Company Innovative Festival in New York City. Her own story is now showcased as part of the Library of Congress's Oral History Project. Her fluency in four languages and her ability to empathize with codes, customs, and belief sets from around the globe has allowed her to thrive in a variety of environments with a diversity of clientele. Pat, it is a pleasure to have you on On Cities today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kara. So, Pat, from what I understand, you moved around a great deal as a child. So tell me about this journey. Well, the journey was actually a part of a history that we know, which is history of immigrants. Uh, I was born in Cuba, in Havana. Uh, I had to leave. Uh, with my parents, uh, and we ended up in Madrid in Spain. Uh, and that was uh, the 60s, uh, Franco era, uh, very difficult economic time in Spain. And my parents, as young architects, uh, you know, struggled through that time period. Europe was in turmoil. You know, we had 1968 with invasion of Czechoslovakia. And it was a great sort of um, moment for us to, uh, as a family, start thinking, you know, what was our next chapter? My parents then decided to move to Puerto Rico uh, because there was uh, this opportunity for um, having a 
uh, the ability to partner for social housing uh, in the Caribbean, in the Caribbean and the Americas. Uh, so there was this, you know, back and forth in Jamaica and Puerto Rico. Uh, and then eventually uh, I ended up in New York uh, and then in Zurich uh, and back in New York. <laughs> so it's been, I would say, a training of global uh, ness, uh, you know, to really sort of understand that, uh, you know, we all have uh, similar circumstances, you know, I had to learn different languages, I had to really sort of understand society and humans at, at a visceral level, and that we're all, you know, trying to uh, strive in our own journeys. Um, so it's really a story of of immigration, and a story of, of uh, welcoming and a story of belonging. Mm. Um, and I think that has influenced me a lot uh, on my work and and how I see uh, you know design. Do you have any memories of Cuba? Or were I you do. Too young when I you... do. No, I do have memories of Cuba. I I was um, you know old enough to go into first grade, and uh, and I do remember that. Um, I remember streets. I remember buildings, uh, and I also remember my flights on an Iberia. Uh, playing to Spain with nothing but one doll. And uh, it is it is a memory that stays with you, yes. Mm. Yeah, we, we share a little bit. Um, I have also uh, Cuban parents that had to leave in a similar fashion. And I think your story is one of immigration. And I think as an immigrant, uh, one seeks to belong, mm -hmm. uh, seeks to identify. Um, but also maybe if you embrace that, um, you also become a more em empathetic individual um that displacement perhaps makes you more empathetic maybe we can talk about that a little bit um later as we talk about your work but um but let me let me dwell a little bit longer because you were raised you said briefly right you were raised by two parents who were both architects yes um so tell me a little bit about them oh yes uh my parents met at the university of havana at the uh school of architecture um at, I think it was during their second year, their sophomore year at school. My father is actually a Spanish immigrant. Um, and my mother was, uh, you know, 17th century Cuban, you know. Uh, so it was an interesting mix in that sense. Um, and so as young architects, they were part of that, um, I would say, generation that lived in turmoil, right? Um from the dictatorship of the right to begin with as they were in high school to then the revolution as they were in university. Um, so they went through this whole sort of story of what it is to kind of, uh, you know, find your philosophy or find your truth, um, not only as architects, but as people. And they were tossed around by history um, and it was really interesting to see how that eventually sort of, I would say, influenced their their career, influenced their perspective of architecture, um, and and eventually influenced me. Uh, uh, but it, you know, that's a that's a story that is 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 of course um, still playing uh, through me. Um, and they were very much ingrained in the in the idea that design was a part of their relevance to their country uh, and how they were going to help other country through design. Um, uh, certainly, 
uh, as young architects uh, right after the revolution, they were, you know, practicing. And uh, my father specifically found himself uh, part of a great group of individuals, both Cuban and um, foreign uh uh, as part of the team that designed the schools of art. Uh, he was uh, uh, the, I would say, the second to Vittorio Garatti uh, and was very much part of that team through its inception. These are extraordinary buildings. And for our listeners who are, might not be architects, I mean, um, can you just briefly describe the School of Art, the School of Art? The Schools of Art were, uh, I would say, an experiment of the early revolution days where uh, the architecture was front and center and the arts were front and center, as any history proves in countries that go through this sort of massive shift, tectonic shift. And it was a way of expressing um, uh, you know, the relevance of, you know, giving to the community, giving to society and schools of arts were built in what used to be uh, a golf course, um, you know, for the rich. And so uh, the government decided that they were going to take over that golf course and they were going to give it back to society with schools of art because they wanted to sort of uh, bring the arts uh, for, first and foremost um uh, to society uh, and, and enhance education. You know, that was part of the revolution. There's a great book by John Lomas called The Revolution of Forms. And that chronicles sort of the story of how not only uh, how these schools came about, but the fact that they were never finished. Um, and that's the story to tell because as much as this was sort of the utopia of of the of the architects that were part of this team, um, it, they it became their their final chapter. Um, they were mostly accused of being elitist, of being uh, counter revolutionaries. Uh, they were eventually put into either labor camps or prison, and that's what led us to leave. Obviously, um, but these schools. Uh, are are extraordinary in in the design story behind them not just of how they were imagined but how they were constructed they were great examples of critical regionalism great example of understanding materials local materials of actually expressing design through um metaphors of the cuban woman of um you know history of of uh of music and dance um, so they each were a different sort of chapter of that story or that legacy of Cuban arts and music. Um, and they are unfinished. So they're now protected by UNESCO. Uh, there's a great documentary called Unfinished Spaces that I would encourage everyone to, to, to see uh, because it does chronicle sort of how very apropos to, to our conversation today, how cities um, can dream what they can become and just a moment in, in time can stop that dream and that possibility. Um, and so they're abandoned today. They're, they haven't been uh, finished and um, all of, most of that team has passed away. So now we have a very different story to tell. Yeah. How to continue that? Yeah, I had the opportunity to see those buildings about ten years ago when I went to the island. They're 
um, still in some cases in state of like semi-ruin and yep. unfinished, but they are stunningly beautiful, built out of brick with the influence of the Catalan vaulting yes. system that make yeah. those brick arches look like handkerchiefs in this lush tropical landscape. So um, despite time and, and an island that is still struggling in so many ways, they stand as a testament to those individuals that conceived them. And I'm so... Um, it's it's it makes it special to know that your father was part of that. Now I didn't know that at the time, so mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, so was it inevitable that you would be an architect? I would say so. At this <laughs> point, I think that growing up, I realized that architecture was not a profession that I was going to choose. It had chosen me very early on, and I think. I see architecture and I see my profession as much more than just an intellectual sort of uh, journey. Uh, it is emotional. It is sort of um, a part of, uh, a, again, a story that I need to keep telling. Um, and it has opened me to understand the spectrum of human condition, society, politics, um, climate, environment in, in such interesting through such interesting lenses right so i think my mother uh always told me uh you know if you study architecture you can be anything you want afterwards i mean she really thought architecture was sort of the uomo universale sort of um platform and it really is um you know how many do we how many architects do we know that have branched into different um uh professions as a secondary or primary one but most importantly, I think this attitude that architects, like in history, were policymakers, makers that we were relevant to determining how society evolved or 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 um, or or challenged itself or helped itself, et cetera. So um, I think through her, I also learned that uh, I was going to go in through a journey that was a little bit more just that just then, you know, uh, what I call the pretty picture, right? I mean, that this was um, something a little bit more, more important mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, to, uh, to pursue. And I think it was inevitable. It was something that I, when I look back, um, the funny story being that as I arrived on my freshman year in architecture school, everybody was struggling to understand how to use a main line or how to use uh, the triangle or how to, you know, and I had since I was 12 been helping uh, them, uh, you know, finish or inking drawings and, and uh, doing lettering and drawings, et cetera. So I, once I arrived at architecture school, I was like, Oh, I'm home, you know, here I am doing what I have done all my life as far as I can think. Mm, that's a beautiful uh, kind of recollection of a of a rich past that is still very very present, you know. And may maybe we can dwell a little bit on your education, actually, because um, you studied architecture uh, first, as I understand it, at the University of Puerto Rico, but then you later came to the United States to study at Columbia University, mm -hmm. um, and then also you had a European experience at the ETH. Mm -hmm. So I guess this kind of global narrative continues to stitch through. <laughs> the conversation. So um, I, I, tell me a little bit about this, uh, Pat, and maybe um, who who along the way do you feel were your greatest teachers and what lessons um, did you take from them? Um, yeah, that's a great um, 
questioned. Uh, I, I think as, as I said before, this sort of global journey that I took um, through my personal uh, life, I think kind of paralleled itself when I started architecture. I felt that I couldn't be myopic about um, how I was going to practice, how I was going to learn, how I was going to train. So I started at the University of Puerto Rico, uh, which was a five-year program. It became really interesting sort of grounding platform for me. Um, it, it did teach me so much about not only the merging of technology and art and science and art, which I'll talk about later, probably. Uh, and But it was also about, um, again, sort of grounding me in a very wide range of, you know, sort of elements that I needed and fundamentals that I needed to know as an architect. When I decided to go to Columbia University was to kind of take me to this other level of academia and really sort of exploring and um, I would say researching and innovating and, 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 and going through this other chapter of uh, creativity. Um, I really uh, sort of expanded my horizon um, of what architecture was and could be. And I uh, was, uh, I encountered amazing individuals there too. So I learned a lot from that, from that community that I was surrounded by that was so diverse. Um, and that took me to uh, the ETH in Zurich, uh, which was certainly sort of a great chapter in my education because um, uh, as I found uh, at Columbia, there was an interest that I had in structural engineering. There was an interest that I had in critical regionalism. There was an interest that I had in sort of this, uh, you know, a little bit more sort of a subversive way of seeing uh, architecture. And I wanted to experiment and I wanted to learn more. And I found myself in the Eteha right when uh, there was a, um, a a group of young uh, architects graduating right before me, uh, um, namely Herzog and Demerol, which were young TAs at that point. And, uh, you know, helping... Uh, you know, others that were part of this new wave of critical regionalism, this new wave of, of seeing architecture through the lens of not only context and climate, but also uh, stories and metaphors. So it was a great sort of um, uh, moment uh, and a very enriching moment for me. And that globalization of, of really seeing the two sides of a coin, you know, uh, of how design uh, really sort of becomes a methodology and a process and a philosophy that allows you to have your own voice was what I took away from, right? Mm -hmm. So I go back to New York with that, you know, armor. Um, and I think that to this day, that combination, that intersection that I have between understanding the Americas and uh, climate through this visceral understanding of you must be responsible in your architecture to all the way to this intellectual other side of the spectrum of, of invention and of evolution of voices and what is it that we need to do to write that next chapter through design. Mm. So 
I um I understand that you 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 returned to New York, right? Yeah. Um and were working there, but you and and perhaps you could say a little bit about that, but I know that you came to Miami mm-hmm. in the late 1990s with what I think was supposed to be a very small, you know, hiatus that turned out to be a I guess a 30-year chapter. So, uh tell me what brought you to Miami initially? You know, again, life uh while I was in New York working, I had the privilege of working for Stephen Hall and Richard Meyer and Partners. Um, I found myself uh, having uh, an opportunity to come to the University of Miami and study for a semester. I mean, uh, teach for a semester. I found that to be a great moment of, you know, let me take a breather and I'll go there for a semester, uh, teach and uh, and sort of again, sort of provoke myself with new challenges and, um, and learn from students. Um, as I arrived in Miami, uh, I uh, was able to meet a lot of great professors. Um, and one of them in particular had uh, been um, approached regarding uh, Perkins and Will opening a new office in Miami and did he knew? Did he know of anyone that knew about Perkins and Will? And um, and Perkins and Will, for those who might not be aware, is an internationally recognized global firm, uh, which at the time was opening up a, a maybe a Miami a office? Miami studio. We uh, Perkins and Will today is a thirty uh, studio global firm. Um, so we have studios all over the world. Back then, this is nineteen ninety six when we started a studio. Um, we were probably four or five studios. So it was a great opportunity uh, to sort of uh, imagine the unimaginable um, and a great opportunity to sort of uh, uh, start uh, a great uh, sort of opportunity, uh, not only for a firm, but for Miami. And so that uh, really sort of uh, was an interesting choice for me not to go back to Miami. When I met the CEO of Perkins and Will, and I learned about its history and legacy, it almost brought me back full circle when Ken Frampton taught me about myself. Um, the fact that um, there was a revolution of forms inside of me, and that critical regionalism was a legacy in my love poems to my parents. Um, and Perkins and Will was really sort of based on this legacy of being a transformative force through design, uh, the civic responsibility of putting all my passions in that, that in fact, um, that through design, I could be relevant, that I could be of consequence and that I could leave things better than, than, uh, you found them. And I think that Perkins and Will opened those doors for me. And that's why I chose to then be part of that next chapter. And Kenneth Frampton was your formidable professor at Columbia, correct? Yeah. And to go back to one of your questions of who were my influences, I mean, certainly Ken Frampton um, made an impact because when he found out about the schools of art and a little bit of my history, he almost um, propelled me to understand that I could not walk away from that history and that background and that I had to cement myself and ground myself in that reality and that and that aspect of who I was and where I came from. And, and then he was the one who 
um, suggested I go to the Eteha. He was the one that really suggested that critical regionalism was something that I really needed to kind of delve into. Um, I would say in terms of influences, he reminded me of the mentorship I and the wiring that I had through my parents, right? And my mother as a, as a young female architect and, you know, seeing her just thrive and, and have a balance about what she was going to be as an architect and as a mother. Um, I do uh, think that my grandfather, her father, uh, gave me a life lesson that to this day I have, which is, like I said, living things better than I found them, but also to be fearless and to find joy and to find passion and commitment on everything that I do. And that giving back was probably the most important thing I needed to do in life, right? And what an amazing um, kind of a role model, because uh, again, uh, we're sitting here and uh, I would say the profession that is of architecture um, is is shifting, but at the highest levels is still, I would argue, a male-dominated world. And you've been a strong female voice in that world. And I want to talk a little bit about that, Pat, but we're coming to the middle of the episode. So I'm going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue the conversation with Pat Bosch. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, a series of fascinating projects that she's been working on and maybe touch upon what it's like to be a leading female in uh, the world of design and architecture today. So um, do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Pat Bosch, Design Director of the internationally recognized firm of Perkins and Will. Uh, and before the break, we just began, uh, uh, or, or we started talking about uh, your your work with the firm. And I'd like to delve into that a little bit now, Pat. Um, I want to talk about a few um, of the projects that you're working on. Um, and I have heard you lecture on a project for the Princess Nora University in Saudi Arabia. Um, Pat, tell us how you came to design this university. Um, this is a great story. Uh, uh, this is in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Um, this is uh, King Saud um, had a fascinating uh, aunt named Nora, Princess Nora. And uh, she was the first female pilot in Saudi Arabia. And she was this extraordinary woman. And he wanted to celebrate her. And he felt how better but to build a university for women in Saudi Arabia um, committed to education. Women in Saudi Arabia are highly educated. And they mostly do it abroad. And he really wanted to create sort of this um, powerful sort of center of academia and intellectual uh, recognition of women in Saudi Arabia. And our firm uh, was uh, part of, a, you know, international competition. We won the competition. And it was a competition of, you know, sort of uh, really uh, not a design competition, but it had a competition about, you know, your portfolio and what have we done, et cetera. And as I mentioned um, uh uh, being a global firm now, uh, Perkins and Will was really a 1930s Chicago firm that built its legacy on education. Um, and it was a great sort of anchor point of innovation of education. I mean, we've done probably more schools than any firm in the country or more schools than any firm in the country. One thing that was interesting was that the brief basically said you had to build 30 million square feet within two years, uh, which you can't really imagine how that can be done. So um, our firm was fearless enough to kind of embark in this uh, sort of commitment to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. No one in our firm was really sort of prepared to understand what this meant. Um, I mean, this was this is rarely done uh, by any global firm. And um, you know, not a lot of design leaders in our firm were uh, willing or able to kind of embark in this uh, journey. And so I raised my hand and I basically said, I can do this. Um, and I didn't realize when I raised my hand that they were going to give me 10 million square feet of the academic campus component of the university. So this is the largest university for women built at once in the world. It became the first um, uh, campus, university campus 
gold certified. So it was really about building a city. Um, and I started this with an intellectual sort of attitude of how do you build a city? How do you build 10 million square feet? You know, what is the kind of technology we need to develop? Um, I also went at it with the educational lens through uh, uh, where we were going to innovate on education and higher ed. Um, not once did I go into it thinking of the women until I went and met and had meetings and um conversations and realized started really immersing myself in the culture in the place in the context and this is a full circle conversation where critical regionalism and understanding context um culture uh environment uh really plays a, a role it was at that moment that i realized i had to tell the stories of these women and the concept of the project became Veils in the Desert. And it was a story of these women, the powerful women that I was meeting. The neurosurgeons, the doctors, the physicists, uh, the changers of society, right? They were really wanting a platform to empower. Um, actually, uh, I transformed myself, I think, as a designer and as a woman and as a female architect through this process. This is the project that I will forever think of as the pivotal moment in my career. Um, untold stories are things that I found myself being passionate about. And so each of the buildings are based on women um, uh, holding hands, being a community, um, and that together they could be transformative. It has been a, a a story that continues to reverberate with me. And what what surprised you? What did you learn that, that surprised um, you? I learned that behind the veils, there is power and dreams. And, and, um, and I learned that, uh, you know, there is uh, an opportunity for, again, design to be uh, a relevant force that allows um specifically women to change their 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 future. Uh, this is a university where women in Saudi Arabia started learning how to drive and uh, came back to the government and said, we want driver's license. We want to drive. And now you go to Saudi Arabia, you go to Riyadh and you you take an Uber and there, there they are. And, you know, this amazing ability to go into an Uber and, uh, you know, one of my partners was with me, uh, said to the Uber driver, you know, this is my partner, Pat. She was the one that designed the academic campus, University of Princess Nora University. And the woman became very emotional. Um, and she turned around and said, you don't understand, you changed our lives. And that was something I didn't expect. I didn't seek that. But to think of design as that powerful shift in someone's life is is a gift. And um, kind of we could dwell there a little bit longer. I mean, could you describe, because you're talking about this community of women, right? Mm -hmm. That you that you discovered, mm -hmm. right? And probably surprised you, taught you. Um, can you uh, help us understand 
how the architecture kind of reinforced this community? What about the physical spaces? What about the design, the physical design of the university? The design, uh, we had to create buildings that um, created almost a a compound uh, that you couldn't look in. And so the buildings are actually veiled. The the buildings have these uh, mashrabias that are, you know, like 30 meters high. They uh, clout sort of veil the entire compound from the outside. All you see are these magnificent um, sort of mashrabias or screens that we reinterpreted and and reimagined uh, and bailed out of um, new technology with concrete. Um, And as you find yourself in each of these buildings as you travel into the inner sanctum of that uh, campus or that uh, compound. There's a a linear, um, I would call it garden, that emerges in the center. Um, It's almost an oasis. It's like this protected world. Um, And the buildings are deveiling as you go in. So they become more transparent. They become all glass, daylight goes through um the mashrabias also become the and the screens become the veils become these intelligent elements in the architecture because their mass their mass absorbs the heat of the environment and so it cooled the buildings successfully so it became again the science meeting art but also as i thought of each of the women being a building all the buildings are kind of connected with each other through this um set of bridges and walkways and colonnades and women in Saudi Arabia as I first arrived in Riyadh um, would I saw groups of women walking together holding hands and I thought that's such a powerful sort of comment on community and and a force of we're together and I wanted those buildings to hold hands I wanted this sort of compound to be a series of women holding hands powerfully debailing as they go into their inner sanctum into their compounds that at the center is vibrant is full of nature and it's um it's a it's a new beginning it's full of life um restorative resilient and you know as you find yourself walking through these buildings that are Actually, the next gen of educational buildings are incredibly adaptable and flexible and nimble in terms of allowing for spaces to evolve through curriculums, right? So um, these are not traditional buildings by no means, they're high tech. Um, And this is also important because they wanted a canvas from where they could um, really evolve their curriculums and change them constantly. This university was designed for 25,000 students and i had to go back within a year because they had 65,000 wow. students enrolled and so the buildings allow for that flexibility to occur so we didn't have to build more we just had to you know replan or 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 help um them understand um how these buildings could transform for even more um you know students uh it's going to be a 10 year anniversary i've been invited to go back now uh to give a lecture and has it continued to grow every yes. year? What what is it like right well, now? Well, they're, they're right now at sixty five thousand, but what it has happened is that it's become a um, center for international women to go and and mm. you know uh, pursue careers uh, and pursue 
academic, you know, uh, sort of um, empowerment because there's a research area there. There's a hospital. Um, there are different, uh, you know, there's health sciences, et cetera. So it's a full university that now is sort of like the Harvard uh, of, of, of the region and it's attracting a lot of international students too now. So it's not just the Riyadh women or the Saudi Arabian women. It's also about the region and global uh, intersection. So it's quite fascinating to see how it has evolved. Right. And when was the last time you were there? So you'll be going now for the 10-year anniversary? I was there about a year ago. Oh, okay. uh, going so back. you remain connected. Yeah, I still I remain connected, but I also remain um, active in mm. doing work there in the Middle East. Well, that's a, an extraordinary story. I think that there are certain projects in one's career that hold a very special place in one's heart, um, not only for the physical development of the architecture, but because of how that um, world that one creates can transform that's in right. a society. So I, I think that's one that um, was able to do both. So um I, I loved hearing it. And maybe, you know, since we've been talking about the kind of local versus the global, maybe we can go to the extreme opposite and talk about a local project. We're both here sitting at the University of Miami School of Architecture having this conversation. Um, and I recently learned that the firm um, under your direction is uh, redesigning or reimagining the headquarters for Florida Power and Light. That's correct. Tell me about this. Well, uh, the interesting part of this is that um, Next Era, which is their uh, uh, sort of sister company, or they're actually their unregulated side, um, has been growing exponentially. And um, FPNL and Next Era um, uh, dreamt and led by example, uh, wanting to create a campus and a headquarters that was really about resiliency, uh, regenerative design, and uh, really sort of embarked in a in a in 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 a research of companies around the country and the world uh, that could deliver that to them. Um, we were chosen out of many companies uh, because we were able to provide them with a vision of what it would be to design probably the most resilient building, not only in the region, but probably um, the Americas. So it is a campus that will sustain uh, Cat 5 hurricanes, uh, extreme events of a 500-year flood, you know, 10 feet of water, a wall of water hitting it. Um, it is uh, the place where a lot of the main strategic thinking will occur uh, when an extreme event hits um, the country or hits the region, you know, how they deploy um, all of the uh, 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 trucks uh, for uh, restoring energy. But it also is leading by example, not just in the resiliency, but also in solar power and, uh, you know, conservation of water energy um, really sort of dealing with what it is to think of what the next gen will be of buildings that we need to start thinking of, what kind of materials, what kind of um, technology we need to start thinking of. We did change the industry in the region because we had to invent new ways of creating assemblies of glass, creating assemblies of concrete or steel. Uh, but it's just... Um, 
it's it's a great sort of full circle for us to bring the world to our community here and to really sort of reimagine what is it that resiliency looks like. So what I understand then that the project is for um, a, a campus again, yeah. so a collection of buildings, yeah. right? That yeah. um, that are is meant to be developed in one on one site. In yes, Miami. it's one site, a collection of buildings. And as as we were designing the campus, we brought science into the equation, and we started testing in wind tunnels how to create a virtual dome. In essence, uh, we did a lot of research. What would be, you know, what was the direction of hurricanes and storms coming into the state, um, and we found out that they come from all directions. So because they come from all directions, you're ca- you're actually creating almost a dome, a uh, circular uh, condition. The buildings are positioned and they deformed and they were sculpted in a way where they are actually very aerodynamic. And it was fascinating to have to kind of relinquish your sort of uh, instincts of wanting to sculpt the buildings a certain way and the wind was telling you otherwise, the climate was telling you otherwise, the sun was telling you otherwise. So it is a campus that is actually protecting itself. Uh, it's, uh, it's a way of creating um, a, you know architecture that as you build it, as the campus completes itself, it will sustain beyond the winds that we designed to because now it protects itself and it becomes a, that virtual dome of protection. And it's so, really interesting. And when is the project scheduled? I mean, what is the timeline on this project? So phase one was just finished and it's occupied and we are starting on phase two and uh, there are four phases to this project. Hmm. So, I mean, the projects that you lead at the firm are complex. They're complex in scale um, they're complex in context, certainly climate. You're working throughout the globe, right? And you've been doing that since the late 90s, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we could go back to maybe something we alluded to just before the break. You know, you've been doing that as a female leader um, in a profession, which again, arguably at the highest ranks is still uh, predominantly a male profession. And so I'm curious, you know, what challenges have you encountered um, in that journey? And are there any lessons that you could share with maybe young female designers that are out there listening to us today? Yeah, 100%. I think that the biggest lesson I've learned at Perkins and Will was um, never let anyone tell you that you cannot do something, right? Um, Have the conviction that you can achieve. Um, There are are no obstacles in front of you except the ones you put yourself. However, there are current challenges still, right? I mean, we are, in essence, a minority design leaders that happen to be female, and specifically these kind of global and corporate environments. Um, I would say uh, Perkins and Will gave me the platform, and I took it. Um, Open doors, and I went through them. Um, provided opportunities I did not shy away from. And that's a lesson learned, right? I mean, never pull yourself back from a challenge that may be something you've never done before, something you can't imagine. And you were just mentioning, I have found myself doing large, complex projects. And and that's kind of where I thrive. I thrive in, in the unimaginable, in the in the challenge of doing something that has never been done before, in the challenge of uh, 
just because it's bigger doesn't need to be less important or less relevant in intellectual thought, you know, that we are here to elevate the the discourse in design. Um, I think as a female designer, I find empathy and emotion to be a superpower. Um, I think we talked about it earlier on. Um, that has, a, and this global sort of upbringing, this idea that you know, no matter where I go in the world, I find myself, you know, finding similarities and connecting my dots and weaving a canvas of sort of design that is um, unique to its place, but it's still a journey of all the things that at our firm we believe in, you know, again, um, you know, doing a hospital in Ghana, for example, for mothers and children, I mean, that is, that is a a gift that you're given in a firm like ours, right? Is that another project you're currently working on? That was finished about, uh, I I want to say five or six years ago. And it is amazing. I mean, you still see, I still see posts in Instagram of people that are posting on the project because um, like one uh, architect told me actually at the World Architectural Festival, I was presenting the project and he came to me and he said, you know, I just want to tell you something. I'm an architect from Ghana. I wanted to see uh, you present the project. You have to understand that um, this hospital, which was the older hospital, was built in the 1920s, was a place where we would go to die. And now we see the new hospital as a place we go to live. And again, these are the kind of moments that you walk away (laughs) with that, um, a firm like ours has given me the opportunity to experience, right? So there are a lot of challenges. I still think that I have a lot of work to do to uh, continue to mentor and open doors for the younger uh, women in our firm. I have been allowed to do that. You know, I've been given that opportunity. I think our firm has um, amazing female leadership within its ranks. And that is actually something that inspires me every day. You know, I am, I am, I am amongst equals and I am always uh, seeing myself as part of the solution in the industry, but I do want to make sure that um, we don't finish this uh, story by being um, passive about it. We need to be determined to change our numbers and to not leave your career midway. Just keep going. It's not going to be easy. Nothing that is worth something has been easy ever, right? So I I would say um, not just in corporate America, but in general, I see a lot of young women uh, that need the encouragement and need the role model and need the conversation sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, to be told you can do this. Yeah. And I think for those that are out there that may, um, that may fall into this category, I think what I hear in your answer is, you know, sometimes you have to seek out your mentors. So look for the firms, you know, that may have the kinds of individuals that you want to be learning from exactly, and be in the environments that, you know, will allow you to grow to your full potential, um, you know, whatever gender, but in spe- specifically in this case, I think women in the discipline. Yes. Um, and I, um, for one, feel very passionate about this. And so I, I applaud you for your work in the field and also for your ability to be generous enough to mentor the next generation, because that is truly um 
what I think we're all responsible uh, to be doing. That is a great comment, Carrie, because, and I admire what you do uh, in your work, uh, both academically and, and as a practitioner. I do believe that we need to be the person that we needed when we were younger. And that has been my mission lately, right? If I did not have a me when I was embarking on my journey, my story, I need to be that uh, for the younger women. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the conversation. (laughs) And so I ask all my um, guests this final question. You have about a minute or so, Pat. What is your favorite city and why? Oh, my. Um, I guess I can say that my answer today was actually something I did not imagine. And I would say in 2016, I changed my opinion on what my favorite city was. Um, I felt Paris was the magic of romance uh, and discovery, Um, that Barcelona was the poetry of my roots and uh, the fearless power of creativity. Um, In Beirut, I found the intensity of history and in Rio de Janeiro, the power of nature as architecture. I mean, these are planned structured cities and non-planned unstructured cities. However, I found myself returning to my walks through Havana in 2016. And I was back 50 years later, and I found all my favorite cities in one. Uh, It was a linear chronological sort of account of the history of architecture and society in the Americas and in the world. It was an emotional journey through the arts and urbanism and gardens and architecture and politics and wars and wealth and the human condition. You know, I just really, it took me through this wonderful sort of place that really was uh, an extraordinary uh, collection uh, of a world uh, that uh, would then become my answer to you today. Hmm. Uh, That's a full circle for me. Yeah. And Havana is an extraordinary city, truly the Rome of the Caribbean. So thank you. Thank you, Pat, for your time, for your dedication to the discipline, and for your ability to share your story with us today. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 